Let's pray together. Father God, we ask that as we open your word, Father, that you will speak to our hearts. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, encourage us uh, in ways that we may not even know we need to be encouraged. And so, Father, I pray that as we look today um, at this text, just walking straight through Matthew, Father, that you will help us to see that this doesn't just apply to someone else. It applies to us in our own heart. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. In our day, discussions about justice are prevalent. It feels as if more than ever people are asking, what is truly just? What is right and wrong? What is worthy of retribution? Now, sadly, one of the topics that is missing in many of these discussions is the justice of God. While it is certainly good that people consider how people should treat people, Humanity, by and large, has displayed a complete lack of interest in in its own treatment of God. Certainly, God demands justice for all people. They are made in his image, and therefore, unjust mistreatment of his image bearers deserves swift retribution. However, in those who bear, if those who bear God's image deserve justice when they're mistreated, how much more does the rejection of God warrant justice? If we reject and mistreat as dejected and unwanted the image of God, then how much more is it abhorrent, atrocious, sad, tragic? unrighteous to reject the author of life, the one who made all people to bear his image. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 50 is difficult for many modern readers. Here we have Jesus say in no uncertain terms that rejecting him is equivalent to blasphemy. Can you imagine any other man in history saying that to reject him or to speak against him is equivalent to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And it is therefore unforgivable. He goes on to say that people are either for him or against him, a polarizing statement by any stretch that is often frowned upon these days. When we hear people say, you're either for me or against me, we often frown on that, right? It's not, it's not something that we tend to like to hear. Jesus says that there is no middle ground. There's no position of neutrality. Either people follow him or they oppose him. Now ask any modern person, but the most egregious sins worthy of the worst kind of judgment. And it is likely that rejection of Jesus does not even make the top 10. I mean, sure, you're going to come across people who are going to be willing to make lists and include uh, genocide, murder, stealing, lying, racism, and so on. But surely we would not list rejecting the son of God, Jesus, as one of the top most egregious evils that there are. However, this is not the way that Jesus views rejection and unbelief. In his own diagnosis of his people's rejection, Jesus clearly states that unbelief is not benign. And today I pray that you will see that the unbelief of humanity is completely not benign. It is malignant. It is terrible and it it has far-reaching 
effects and results for all eternity, and necessarily so. At its root, it is devilish by nature, and it warrants even severe judgment. And so in a world that is seeking to answer questions about judgment for mistreated people, justice for mistreated people, I think it seems worthwhile just for a moment to take a break from talking about people's treatment of people and talk about man's treatment of the Savior, man's treatment of God. If people deserve justice, then God deserves justice. And as we begin to, we'll begin to see today, rebuffing Jesus does bring judgment and it cannot be any other way. Now the goal of this study is simply to diagnose man's rejection of Jesus. We're going to cast it in its proper light. We're going to expose its source and we're going to talk about its terrible result. But before we do anything, we need to set the context. Matthew's been writing this gospel. He's been telling us about what Jesus has done. He's healed lepers. He's touched the untouchable. So le- lepers come to him asking him for healing. He stretches out his hands and he touches them and makes them clean. He helps the centurion's servant. He does things that no one else can do and shows himself to be the son of God. And the underlying question in Matthew's gospel is simply this, who is this man? Everybody's asking that question. Now people are coming up with different answers to that question, but Matthew's goal is to show that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah, the God in flesh, and that his coming is the visitation of God himself. And yet by rejecting him, people are rejecting their God. They point at him. They whisper about him. They talk about how he eats with tax collectors and sinners they accuse him of breaking their laws, of, of, of trampling on their long-held fences around those laws and set out to kill him. And in the last section, we saw how Jesus proved that he is the Davidic king, but he is also the suffering servant who withdraws from the argument sometimes because his goal is not to have a street fight with these Pharisees. His goal is to die for sinners. But now the Pharisees have caught up with him. He withdrew, they chased him down. He's gone on to other places. Now they come looking for a fight again. Verse 22 begins. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, everything in this event, I mean, just, just think of it. This is a man who is blind, he is mute, he is demon-oppressed. Everything in this event should have, should have led the Pharisees to extreme joy. This is an incredible sign being done right in front of them. Isaiah 35 speaks of the coming restoration, when the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And it was a sign that God's salvation has come to his people. This should have been something that left everybody awestruck and clapping. And so the the idea, can this be the son of David, is rightly placed is an appropriate question. Look at what is happening. Look at the sign. This mute and blind man now sees and hears and he speaks. And that is a sign that restoration has come. Now the Pharisees, with their hate-filled interpretation, twist it out of proportion. They twist it out of its rightful interpretation. It is only by Beelzebul. In other words, by Satan. That's just another name for Satan. It is only by Satan, the prince of demons, 
that this man cast out demons. I think it's worth noting that they don't deny that Jesus actually has cast out a demon. They don't say, he's not really casting out demons. They don't say he's tricking you. He's not, they're not saying he's a, some kind of magician, like little street magician that's just uh, being a charlatan toward you all. No, they don't say any of that. They readily confess that at Jesus's word, the demons really do run. They readily confess it. Their problem, however, is with how he does that. They want to cast a little bit of shadiness. They want to create a little bit of a scandal with how Jesus has done that. The same sign that should have brought joyful restoration, should have brought joyful worship and praise, they look at it and they see it as a sinister and scandalously devilish work. The same event that had everyone amazed and awestruck, they're pointing fingers at, whispering about once again, it must be Satan at work. Such is the nature of disbelief. Disbelief blinds people from seeing the truly good news of Jesus. Disbelief distorts the Savior into an oppressor, the Son of God into a servant of Satan, the Messiah into a madman, the good king who came to lay down his life for his people into a tyrannical king who wants nothing more than to take away your most beloved affections in life. Disbelief twists Jesus out of proportion. It casts a long, cynical shadow across God's grace. When disbelieving blinders come on, the bread of Jesus looks moldy and stale. The water of Jesus looks poisoned. The freedom of Jesus is oppressive. And the love of Jesus is hatred. My friends, we've all been there at some point when we think about the good things of God in evil ways. And we all know people who have terrible views of our Savior, who have terrible views of our God. That is what disbelief does. Disbelief twists Jesus out of proportion to where he's unrecognizable. Now, I've been here, uh, actually next month, I'll celebrate the end of my fifth year here um, at Grace Church. And if I've had one goal, it is to get you to read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've used it in so many illustrations. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm glad you guys are reading your Bibles more. You should definitely do that. But if you do not have Chronicles of Narnia, I'm ashamed to say that I have failed you. Um, but if you have read Chronicles of Narnia, as my family is doing, um, you know in the last book, uh, called The Last Battle, that you see something similar. And I, I couldn't help but think about that when I, was, when I was reading this. When we get to this to that part of the story in the last battle, Timothy always laughs. He thinks that, th that these people are crazy, that these people are, are dumb. Here's what, he, here's what happens in, in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. You get these dwarves. They're all there. Um, first off, it's a story with dwarves, so don't think it's nerdy or weird. It's, it's really cool. Anyway, these dwarves are there, and they're sitting at this table, and Aslan is trying to rescue them from the destruction to come. He wants to feed them. He wants to give them good wine. He wants, to, he wants to help them. And everything they see, they interpret as attempted slavery. They think that Aslan's not trying to rescue them. He's the Christ figure. They don't think he's trying to bring them out of their darkness and into a whole new world where they can celebrate and have a good life with him. Instead, they think that he's trying to bring them in to slavery. He's trying to trick them into it. 
And at the end, after they're complaining about the bread being poisoned and the wine being tainted and everything they see is just terrible. Every good thing that he does is just wicked and evil. And here's what Azan laments at the end, finally. He says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their poison is only in their own mind, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Do you know people who maybe don't know enough about Jesus or haven't read enough about Scripture and they're so afraid of being taken in that's impossible to take them out of the prison that's in their own mind? Is it possible that some of us are like that? We're so afraid by new ideas. We're so afraid to be taken in that that we can't be taken out of old darknesses. Good things we recast into an evil light. The same sentiment applies to the Pharisees. They see this really good Savior in front of them. There's nothing that he has done to indicate any kind of malicious intent, insurrection, or hatred towards them. They try to pick a fight, and he withdraws. If they leave him alone, they wouldn't have to ever fight him. Instead, they chase him down, and they're so afraid of being taken in by this supposed Messiah's gospel that they can't be taken out of their own disbelief and darkness. It's something to be pitied. These Pharisees chose cunningness, intelligence, intellect, religiousness, instead of belief, and were thereby locked away in the prison of their own unbelieving heart. Just listen to the accusations. Incredibly strong. He cast out demons by Beelzebul. It's one that would have certainly raised some eyebrows, right? It'd be like saying that our worship pastor leads worship by the spirit of Satan. Is it certainly enough to start to raise eyebrows? Let's open an investigation. What kind of seance is he doing beforehand? But that's the kind of accusation that they make. And strong as it was, it was utterly ridiculous. It was irrational. And so in the next following verses, Jesus points out their logical fallacies, or we can call them their illogical fallacies, because it made no sense what they were saying. And so as we walk through, we're going to see just how irrational disbelief can be. First, Jesus argues from the logic that a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It says this, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Put simply, a kingdom at war cannot stand. It will not survive. From Jesus' logic, why would the tyrannical prince of darkness, who wants to swallow everything up in darkness, retreat? Why would he undermine his own reign? Why would he try to cast himself out? That doesn't make any sense. Their argument doesn't have any kind of logic to it. It would be absolutely self-defeating. So following Jesus' logic, he has opposed the demonic. He has pushed out demons. He has set the oppressed free. And so by such of his opposition against Satan, he must be against Satan. If he's against Satan, guess who he's for? He must be for God. He must be on God's side. 
Second, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, (laughs) by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Ask a Pharisee, by whom do your sons cast out demons? And they're probably going to answer you, well, by God's spirit, of course. We all have really good views of our kids, right? The Pharisees are no different. They're going to not be taken in by thinking that their kids have malicious intent or their kids are following the spirit of Beelzebub. Instead, they would believe that it's by the spirit of God. Our children, you cast out demons by Beelzebub, but our children do it by the spirit of God. Well, Jesus points out to that illogical fallacy. If they are saying that casting out demons is proof that he has worked in the power of Satan, then what does that say about their children? Obviously, they're going to start backtracking, right? And they're going to say, no, our children do it by the Spirit of God. Well, if they do it by the Spirit of God, then Jesus does it, does it by the Spirit of God. If Jesus does it by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The king has come the good news is, is given for you. And so in order for their accusation to stand, they have to be consistent across the board. What's true of Jesus must be true of their sons. As it is, their inconsistent logic reveals their irrational disbelief. And it also reveals that they are missing out on the good news that God's kingdom has dawned, demonstrated by the defeat of the devils. Now, finally, he goes to one more argument. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is pointing to his own line of work. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that sounds almost exactly like Isaiah 49, which talks about strong men being bound up, their houses being plundered, and then comes the restoration. It's the second exodus that happens. It's, it's almost in line with Egypt being bound up, the Israelites plundering Egypt, and then walking out on the other side of the Red Sea alive and flourishing. So Isaiah 49 says it's going to happen again. And then Jesus points to it and says, um, I'm binding demons here. I'm binding the strong men. It falls in line with everything else that you see God doing in his redemptive work. Now, what should have been happening with the Pharisees is when they see Jesus defeating these demons that no one else has been able to defeat, it should have had them backtracking and thinking, if Jesus is binding strongmen, then what happens next? Jesus is preparing the devil for his own defeat on the cross. Jesus is working up to something. He's pushing out these devilish enemies. He's freeing the people of God. The oppressed are seeing for the first time in their life freedom. Blind men born blind can see. Deaf men who can't hear now can hear. Their ears are unstopped. Mute men can sing. The lame can dance. And all of it pointing forward to what he's about to accomplish on the cross when he dies for sinners. If this is the kind of work he's doing now, then what's about to happen? And that's the question that they should have been asking. But because of their disbelief being irrational, they could not see the good news of the gospel. My friends, all disbelief in Jesus is irrational. 
For the various reasons a person might give for their lack of faith in Jesus, I, I have not yet heard of one from a friend that, does not log that, that logically stands up to the Word of God. I've heard people say, well, I can't believe in Christ uh, Christianity because God's a megalomaniac. Well, that seems irrational when you think about God taking on flesh and then dying as a slave upon the cross. It doesn't sound like a megalomaniac, does it? That's irrational. That's, that's megalomania. A, a God who had every right in the universe to stay in heaven and to condemn and judge sinners from where he sat. Instead, he steps into humanity, takes on flesh, though he could speak a word and decreate every single one of them. His body is broken and bruised and bloody. He's put a, they put a crown of thorns on his head, nail him to the cross. He dies and explicitly says, it's for you, and that's megalomania. It's irrational. Calling him a tyrant who loves oppressing people with his law seems irrational when you remember that he's the one who died under the law to set you free from it. You think of all the different reasons that somebody might not believe in Jesus. It almost always comes down to a misunderstanding but it always comes down to a blindness of heart to see who Jesus really is and to be consistent in their logic about Jesus. So to reject such an infinitely good, infinitely perfect, infinitely loving, infinitely just, infinitely holy Savior is infinite folly. Now the Pharisees' reinterpretation of Jesus were not empty words. And we shouldn't read them as such. These are, these, their words are more malignant than we uh, tend to give them credit. Their disbelief is far more sinister than they, they themselves could see. Jesus uncovers the truth of their rejection. Here's what he says. He almost jumps immediately. So he, he, first off, he's, can, he's uh, uh, challenging their logic. He's giving them reasons why their logic doesn't stand. But then he almost immediately switches gear. Who, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But <coughs> the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. In short, my friends, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus we are not divided by ethnicity. We are not divided by age. We are not divided by gender. God made male and female. God made the various ages. God made the various ethnicities. And yet all of them can come together. But there is one thing that divides humanity. And that's faith in Jesus Christ or a lack of it. There's one thing that divides humanity. By all stretch of the term, we should be able to fill this room with every color under the sun, with every age imaginable, and with both men and women from all socioeconomic backgrounds and still be able to find unity in Jesus. Because the one thing that divides humanity is disbelief. Either a person is for Jesus or a person is against him. Now, much ink has been spilt 
on exactly what constitutes a forgivable sin. I, as often as I've heard about, uh, heard this um, uh, quoted from people's mouths, most people haven't stopped to actually read it in context. It's typically a quote um, that is spoken, but not in the greater context. So let's just ask the question, what is the unforgivable sin? Um, how we ever got to suicide being the unforgivable sin, I don't know. Some people have said divorce. Some people have said all these other things. You don't see that in this text, okay? So let's just, let's just follow Jesus' logic. What is he saying is the unforgivable sin? First off, let's just step it off one by one. Number one, Jesus does his work. In this case, casting out demons by the spirit of God. Okay. Number two, the Pharisees have rejected him, claiming that he cast out demons by Beelzebul, by Satan. Number three, by their rejection and statement about his power, they have suggested that the spirit of God is Beelzebul. They have in effect called, called God's good spirit evil. His good testimony about Jesus, a lie. The truth that he is speaking, they have claimed to be a contradiction. And so, what happens when you call a good God evil, or you call God's truth a lie? Well, it's called blasphemy. It's the highest order of sin. In the sense of where you set yourself utterly opposed against God, and you are rejecting whatever God says. And so... Such blasphemy is ultimately unforgivable. This particular blasphemy is ultimately unforgivable. They have rejected what the Spirit is saying about Jesus. Jesus is working in the power of the Spirit. They, they look over here, lepers being cleansed. They look over here, they hear rumors of Jesus walking on water or, or stealing, the, stealing the storm. They look over here and the demoniacs are, are, found, are given freedom. They look over here and Jesus is welcoming tax collectors and sinners in everything that Jesus is doing. The Spirit of God is whispering, this is he who was to come. This is he who's bringing freedom. This is he who's bringing life and joy, and peace with God, and restoring humanity back to God. And yet they are saying, shut up, Spirit. They are, they are silencing the Spirit of God. And as a result, they reject Jesus. My friends, the Spirit of God is still at work doing that same work today. The Spirit of God is moving in the world, attesting to Jesus Christ. Attesting to the world that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The most ultimate way he did this was through the resurrection. Through the resurrection, the Spirit has forever vindicated. Jesus is the Son of God. Had Jesus not raised from the dead, we would still be wondering whether Jesus really was who he said he was. But because of the resurrection, the Spirit has given his definitive final stamp of truth on what Jesus said. And, and the Spirit of God is still working. He's convicting humanity of sin and attesting to the sufficiency of salvation in Jesus. I think that in our deep, dark souls, I don't think that there's anyone who ultimately feels at rest in themselves. No matter what they have claimed to have found, no matter what kind of solution outside of Jesus they have claimed to, to, to have stumbled across, I don't think anyone outside of Jesus can claim to truly have found rest in themselves. Hence the world we live in that is completely restless. 
The Spirit of God's working and moving. And so when, when we, we have friends or neighbors or when we ourselves reject Jesus, what we are ultimately doing is we're denying the Word of God to our own hearts that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the reality of what disbelief actually is. Disbelief is blaspheming God, telling God to be silent about the nature of his own son, telling God that what he says is not ultimately true. It is a crime of the highest order. It's like looking at a king in his face and saying, you have no power to say what you're saying. But it comes from a deeper root too. So as we're diagnosing their rejection, we see that it was completely irrational. We also see that it was far more sinister than they know. These aren't just merely empty words. That's actually coming from a root. There's something inside of them that is causing them to say these things. So Jesus transitions from there and he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified or vindicated. And by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, ironically, these Pharisees are looking at a good fruit demon being thrown out and they're claiming that Jesus is a bad tree. Good fruit, bad tree doesn't make sense, right? Well, Jesus tells them either, either make the tree good or make the tree bad. Good trees bring forth good fruit. Bad trees bring forth bad fruit. You said something bad about the Holy Spirit. You blasphemed. So let's look at your tree. Let's get to the root of the issue. And then he calls them brood of vipers. Now in the Greek translation, you can actually retranslate that as offspring of the serpent. Does that sound familiar at all? Sounds like Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? Where God tells the serpent to his face, your offspring will be against her offspring. You will bruise his head, heal, and he will bruise your head. We know that text, right? So Jesus is ultimately saying, you've accused me of aligning myself with Satan. But by your words, you have proven that you're in line with the serpent. My friends, all humanity divided straight down the middle. Now, we do, as modern people, we don't like to think about that, that. That faith in Jesus actually is the dividing line. But think about it. If Jesus is actually who he said he is, and if his claims stand, then it is absolutely right that all humanity is divided on those two issues. And if they do not accept him, if humanity does not accept him as the one and only son of God, they have set themselves against God just like the serpent. So ultimately, in their rejection, they are the offspring of the serpent who have enmity with the seed of the woman. They are those who will bruise his heel. These, some of these very same Pharisees calling for his crucifixion. I don't like to present a us versus them kind of philosophy in church, because I'll be honest with you, some of us sitting here that are thinking that we are part of the us may very well be part of the them, 
because we haven't fully believed in Jesus. Instead, it's for you to look at the center of that divide, which is faith. Do you trust in Jesus? Do you fall in line with the seed of the woman? Because it doesn't matter where you sit this Sunday morning, inside this sanctuary, and maybe you're here every Sunday without faith in Jesus Christ, without an absolute acceptance of who he is, you are in line with the seed of the serpent. And scripture would call you to repent. Their words about Jesus revealed their hearts. How can they speak like they speak? How can they say the things that they say? What is their fruit saying about them? Well, it's saying that their root is absolutely in evil. They are rooted deeply in evil. According to Jesus, words are a telltale sign that uncover the state of one's heart. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And by your words, you'll be vindicated, proven righteous or not proven righteous. And by your words, you will be condemned. Now, this isn't saying that you will be justified only if you say that you are believing in Jesus, right? We know in other texts that there's many that are going to proclaim Lord, Lord, right? And they don't count in this text. And so what is it saying? Well, people are going to give an account Because words are one of the ways that reveal who we really are. Jesus is merging together a person's words and the reality of what their hearts are. The the reality that we don't like to confess is this. We're accountable even for what we say. Even our words tie back to our relationship with Jesus. What we say about Jesus, what we say about God, what we believe about Scripture, all those are important. Now, we're not vindicated by words alone, but it is a very important thing that we need to understand that there's no such thing as mere words when it comes to Jesus. Words matter. Words are one way of showing whether a person's heart is far from him. Now, let's just bring this in on ourselves. Let's bring the x-ray into our own heart. Friends... If the Pharisees' words revealed a heart of disbelief, what have the words that you have spoken in the last two weeks revealed about yours? What are the words that you've spoken to your wife? The words you have spoken to the Democrat across the street or the Republican in the backyard. What about the the words that we have spoken very publicly and hatefully? Do our words show a heart? I mean, if we're following Jesus' logic, words reveal what's inside. And so can people take what you have said in the last two weeks and say, I see joy. I see love. I see peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I see Jesus. And instead, people have heard our words and the things that they see in our hearts are anger. Hatred. 
spewing. My friends, we will be justified or condemned by our words, and the world has rightly condemned many of us. May our words reveal a deep-seated faith in Jesus and love for God and others. I just haven't had an opportunity to speak about Jesus. Well, you've had an opportunity to speak about a lot of other things. I myself am on the, on the, on the witness stand here for myself, okay? I have spoken about a lot to neighbors, to friends, to people, and yet for some reason, reason I can't find time to shut up about my fantasy football league and to talk about Jesus just a little bit. My words reveal what's important to me. What I say to my wife reveals what's inside my heart. The words my kids hear reveals the kind of love that resides inside their daddy. My friends, may your words not be like the Pharisees where you say things and think that your heart is completely clouded from others. Because I promise you, by your fruit, your tree will be known. Love God, love others, love the gospel in word and deed. We come now to the result of rejection in our last few remaining minutes. They come to him. This this has been a scathing response. Jesus accused them of blasphemy. Jesus embarrassed them by pointing out the irrationality of of their arguments. And they come to him finally, they say, teacher. Now, typically when you hear teacher in Matthew's gospel, from the Pharisees, it is ultimately a, is, is revealing that they still haven't gotten to see him as savior. It's teacher. He's not master. He's not Lord. He's teacher. That's all, he's, all he is. And for these Pharisees, that is all he's ever going to be. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Lepers, centurion servants, the demon-possessed guy that you said I exercises demon through Beelzebul? What, take your pick. What other sign is going gonna, is gonna to work? This is ultimately insincere, and it now borders line and crosses over into testing Jesus. Now, instead of wanting to see his redemptive work and all the things that he is doing that cor- corresponds with the prophets, they now see him as being someone who's just a magician's trick. Show us a trick, Jesus. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. He then goes on to say that just as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, or belly of the fish, the son of man will be in the belly of the earth. They will not see a sign from him until he is risen on the third day. And on the third day, the spirit forever vindicated that he was the son of God. And even then these Pharisees were unmoved. He told them in advance, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he pops out of the earth. The, the tomb is empty. And what do they do? Someone stole his body. They caused an entire Roman co- cohort to pass out from fear. And they took his body. And that's a rumor that still exists 
So as it is, the result will be complete and utter judgment. People from Nineveh will stand up and condemn that generation. Because when Jonah preached, the Ninevites repented. When the queen of the south came and sought Solomon's wisdom, well, someone greater than Jonah, someone greater than Solomon is here, and yet people still are rejecting him. People still are turning away from him. And so they're no different than a man who, according to verses 44 through 45, once had a demon, the demon leaves, and the man is empty. And then he comes back with seven other spirits. Worse off than before. This generation is worse off than any other generation that's ever been. Why? Because they rejected the Spirit of God. They have wreaked havoc on it. Uh, the, the, the spirits uh, in this man will wreak havoc. And so in the same way, they will be wreaked havoc upon. They will have ruin. They will have judgment. They will have absolute destruction because they have rejected God. Now, my friends, my last final moments, we as, a, as Christians in our modern day, not all of us, but many of us have shied away from this idea of an infinitely eternal punishment for sin. Why would Jesus say that rejecting him would lead ultimately to this kind of destruction and judgment? Well, it makes sense when you think about Jesus as being infinitely good. And the rejection of something infinitely good doesn't lead to finite consequences, right? I mean, finite actions will lead to finite consequences. Infinite rejection should lead to infinite judgment. And so Jesus has said they have spurned, they have turned away, they have rebuffed the saving Son of God. And as a result, they will be rejected. And later, when his own mother and brothers come, in verses 49 through 50, they come to find him. They think he's crazy. They've come to seize him. They've come to take him home. Not even their biological connection with Jesus guarantees that they have union with Jesus. Everyone will be judged based on the faith that they have in Jesus or the lack of faith. Jesus says, here are my mothers and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This generation is excluded from Jesus because of their lack of faith. And you and I are brought into the family of Christ only because of faith. So my friends, my hope is, is that as we diagnose rejection, as we diagnose belief, disbelief, my prayer is that we will see it as completely irrational. We'll see it for as severe and malignant as it really is. We'll see it at its root, which is a heart that is opposed against God. We'll see that it brings the worst kinds of results, which is judgment. And then finally, I pray that we will do the opposite which is to do the will of God by believing in Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, we readily confess this by faith alone that we stand before you justified. God, we pray, Lord, that our words will reflect a heart that is centered in Jesus. We pray, God, that you will help us, Father, to continue to press ourselves, Lord, closer to Christ and that you will draw near to us as well. God, we pray that as we speak in the world, that we will understand their rejection rightly for what it is, that we won't make it benign. Lord, God forbid the day that we care more about someone's background 
someone's uh, ethnicity, their politics, or whatever, more than we care about this issue, Father. I pray, Father, that we will be completely focused on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with all people. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.